There you go. Well, I don't usually give trailers for books, but if you would like to read a book, you can find John Lennox, John Lennox's book, uh, Can Science Explain Everything? But I thought it was just brilliant the way that he sort of lays that out in the very beginning there as a way for us to transition into our question for this morning, which is God and science? God and science? Now, if you would like a Bible, uh, we have our frontline teams that would love to bring you one. So you can raise your hand and they would love to bring you a Bible. Uh, if not, maybe you have your own, maybe you want to use your smartphone, whatever it might be. But if you would like a physical hard copy of a Bible, uh, just raise your hand and our frontline team will bring you one this morning. So as we sort of just introduced to us, we're in a series called Questions. Last week we talked about God's existence. This week we're talking about the topic of God and science. Before we fully jump in though and go where John Lennox has suggested we go, why don't we take a moment of pause, of silence. Uh, This is an opportunity for you to identify for yourself how you're feeling, uh, to recognize what's going on maybe in your physical body right now before we fully jump in uh, to engage our minds specifically in the topic of God and science. So take, take a moment to do that and then we'll keep going. So God, we do thank you for the opportunity this morning to be gathered together to be answering questions. God, questions that for many of us come up on a day-to-day basis that maybe we have of you or maybe that we have about the world. So I thank you that we can, uh, that you've given us the resources in this world to actually begin to have some answers to those questions. And so today, while we don't, we won't have the opportunity to fully uh, dig deep into answering this fully, we do have the opportunity to begin exploring. So, uh, Use this time, God, I pray, to challenge us, to encourage us, and we thank you that we are here and that we know that you are with us. We have that assurance. And so we thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, there's a research organization called Pew, and uh, they did some research on this relationship of God and science. And what they found is that 55% of Americans, now I know this is an American stat, believe that God and science are not compatible, and only 39% of people actually believe that it is. Now, this is an American stat, I realize. I would say it's probably higher here in Canada. So what am I saying? I'm saying that the majority of people in our culture do not believe that the topic of God and science are compatible. On the one side, you have what would be the skeptics that would say, well, if you are a rational human being, you can't believe in God and you can't give credit to religion. Okay, so that would be the one side. And maybe some of you are aware of this. You're working with people alongside people, maybe classmates that believe this way, professors that you've sat under that believe this way, that if you're a rational human being, you will not believe in God and you will not subscribe to any particular religion. I would say, though, that there are people on the other side of the debate, which are believers, which say, be careful getting involved in science because if you get involved in science, you're going to lose your faith in God. And so as a result, we have this created dichotomy between God and between science. Now, I always ask questions, right? And so the next question I ask is, is this always the way that it was? Like historically speaking, has there always been this uh, huge gap between believers and skeptics? Is it always these two sides? And the answer to that question is actually no. Historically speaking, the relationship between God and science was a unified one. It wasn't a separate one. It's only actually an invention and a myth of the 
19th century that this has actually come into existence. So then it makes us ask the question, well, why is it such a current reality? Uh, N.T. Wright, in his book, Surprised by Scripture, identifies a couple of things that led to this divide between science and God. One of them, he would say, are cultural issues, particularly here in the West. And in part, part, he would say that the the debate between God and science is actually the greatest, if we look at the entire world, is actually the greatest in North America because of particular issues. He raises one thing as an example, is that the anti-evolution movement was linked to the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, early on. So you can imagine that if you, you know, are, are in sort of that cultural reality, you are like, well, I don't want to be linked to the Ku Klux Klan, so, you know, what's my other alternative? A second cultural uh, reality that he recognizes and points out is the influence of Epicureanism. Now, some of us are like, Epicurean, what are you talking about? Epicurus was an early philosopher, and Epicurus, uh, his, his belief system led to what is now known as modern Epicureanism, but Epicureanism essentially says this, that if the gods exist, they don't care about you and they don't care about me. Epicurus went further than what is known as deism. Deism is the belief that God created, but then he stepped away and is not involved in day-to-day life. Epicurus says, well, you know what? God probably didn't create. He's sort of, if there is a God, he's on the top floor, we're on the very bottom floor, and there's no connection at all. And so what this did did, is it led to this complete divide of belief in our culture and in our world. And what many would say is actually the Enlightenment was actually just building upon deep ideas that was actually Epicureanism and going more deeply and trying to separate any sort of religious ideas from, well, what we can just simply study in the material world. And so what we have is that in this rise, and specifically the 19th century, of this myth around that science and religion cannot coexist. And as a result, you have two types of people. You have the skeptic that says science is our only arbiter of truth. And then sometimes on the other side, you have the religious believer that says religion or the Bible is our only arbiter of truth. And so the question I want to answer today briefly is how do we respond to this divide? And the one option, of course, is to continue to maintain the status quo, right? Well, okay, well, yeah, just keep letting the two things divide. You know, we have the irrational religious types and we have the rational scientific types, right? That would be all lovely. (laughs) Not really. Or we consider a third way. We try to reimagine this debate. We go back to the early beginnings of science and we say, what were they motivated by, these early scientists, as we saw described and introduced of John Lennox? And so that's what I want to do today. What is a way that we can think about the debate between religion and science that is both helpful, that is meaningful, and can give us a bit of a framework as we engage in this world? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give us that framework, and then what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to invite a couple of people up here, people that are part of our church community that are involved in the science fields to help us think through some of the questions that they're asking in relation to their vocations, their studies, that sort of thing. Does that sound like a good idea? Good. We're going to do it anyways, all right? But uh, it's always nice to have your affirmation. Hey, number one, here's the first point that I want to make regarding this debate, regarding these two things. Number one is that science is not a substitute for religion. 
Science is not a substitute for religion. Well, what I mean by that? Well, there's opportunities available to us in science, but then there's limitations of science. The opportunity that is available to us in science is that science gives us the opportunity to discover the incredible details about the physical world and answer questions along the lines of how things work. We can also talk about incredible scientific discoveries, how the body works, the, the writing of the genetic code of the Human Genome Project. We can discover and and research and do study into cancer. We can research and study trying to find ways that cancer can be healed. I mean, all of these things are incredible realities about what science can afford us and offer us. Or how about the science of astronomy? Uh, Some of you are maybe familiar with this image that I'm going to put on the screen. On the left, we have, this is called the Pillars of Creation. Uh, The most recent photograph of the Pillars of Creation is what we have on the right. And this is just somewhere out in space. I mean, it's absolutely fantastic, right? This is out in space. So on the right is the most recent image. On the left is a 20-year-old image. So look at the clarity that was able to be brought after 20 years. And why am I showing you this? I'm showing you this is because this is the opportunity that science provides us. It's also the reality that you're not going to find this picture in the Bible, right? The Bible celebrates the beauty of creation, but you're not going to be able to actually find this particular picture in the Bible. So science gives us an opportunity in that we can study the physical world, find and see amazing things. It's an incredible opportunity. But then there's also limitations to science. And the limitations of science is that science cannot answer questions of the metaphysical, questions about the why things exist and the purpose for things' existence. Uh, For example, Mark Clark in The Problem of God writes this, summarizing these ideas. Science studies the natural physical world, but the existence of God is what is called a metaphysical question. The word meta is the Greek word meaning, after or beyond. God is a being founded beyond the physical world. Thus, the question of his existence is beyond what physics can actually evaluate. As an example, last week we talked about the existence of God, and I gave you four reasons that I believe are rational reasons to consider God's existence. We talked about matter. We talked about the contingency example, that something cannot come from nothing. And so the answer of God's existence can be answered in matter. We then talked about meaning or the purpose of things' existence. We then talked about morality, that in order to have absolute objective morality and have moral objections at all, to live that way is is a great reason to consider consider the existence of God, and then we finished with music, the beauty of art, and all of these different things. Great reasons to trust and believe in God's existence. And this is what is afforded to us when we get into topics of religion, but it's also a limitation of what science can offer us. But then the question is, what happens when science pushes down the limitations of itself? And the answer to that question is that it can lead to a couple of different worldviews. Scientism, is a new worldview that is identified, or naturalism. Scientism says that the hard hard sciences like chemistry, biology, physics, and astronomy provide the only genuine knowledge of reality. And second, naturalism suggests that nature alone exists and that matter alone is real. It's also a form of materialism. Now, you might ask the question, well, what's the problem with scientism and naturalism? We discovered that a little bit last week, but one of the reasons that there's problems with these ways of thinking is that it can lead to moral chaos, since there's actually no absolute moral or ethical grounds to make decisions. And it can also lead to nihilism, which is that there's no purpose to the universe and there's no telus or goal to which humans ought or should strive. 
But then secondly, it's also irrational, and they're completely self-defeating worldviews. For example, Tim Keller identifies it this way. He says, The declaration that science is the only arbiter of truth is not itself a scientific finding. It is a belief. And so this way of thinking actually breaks down if we think about the rational realities of it. In summary, this is what Paul Capone says in a most recent article on the Gospel Coalition blog titled, Science is No Enemy of Christianity. He says, Science has built-in limitations, but some moderns have placed a burden on science that it cannot and was never meant to bear. Theology, philosophy, and other sources of knowledge not only help supplement what science can show, but they can also enrich our study of science. Beautiful. So number one, science is not a substitute for religion. What's the second point then? Religion is not a substitute for science. Religion is not a substitute for science. So as there are opportunities and limitations to science, there are also opportunities and limitations to religion. What are some of the opportunities that religion provides for us? Well, they answer questions that really give us a way to think about our own worldviews. Or if you think about, some of you wear glasses, and so you see the world in such a way, right, through your glasses. But all of us live with a certain worldview. And the worldview can be summarized in the answers to these four questions. One being, who am I? Or, what are the nature and the tasks and the purposes of human beings? Second question of a worldview, where am I? Or what is the nature of the world and the universe that I live in? Thirdly, you must answer the question within your worldview, what's wrong? Right? Like, what is the basic problem or the obstacle that keeps me from attaining fulfillment? And then fourthly, what is the remedy? Or what's the solution to the problem that we have? Right? These are the questions that religion and areas of philosophy can actually answer for you. Re- uh, science cannot actually answer these sorts of questions. So this is the opportunity provided for us. And an example of Gan and the reason why I believe the re- there's a rational reality and, and, and possibility that God does exist in answering questions of this nature. Who am I? Why am I here? What's the problem? And what's the solution to this particular problem? What this means then, there will be limitations of religion. All right? Now, some of you are like, easy. Listen, there are limitations of religion. And what do I mean by that? Well, religion is going to have limitations in that there is not necessarily going to be able to answer details of the material, the structure of cells, DNA, and answering specific questions of how. I mean, it's not just going to be able to answer all of those particular questions. You can spend the rest of your life just reading and studying the Bible, but it's not necessarily going to reveal to you details of a material, physical universe and how everything works in a specific way. Now, I realize that in this next example and illustration, I might be treading on some light water. But this is an area, and this is a big place within our culture that many people say, see, I can't believe in God or religion because of your belief in this particular area. And if maybe you're already starting to think about it, it's the creation of the world, right? And so the question is asked, is Genesis 1 and 2 giving us a detailed scientific explanation as to how the world was created? Now, Here's what I will tell you. I believe that there are passionate Jesus followers in all three camps of the answer to this question. And you might say, what do you mean by camps? I mean, there's three camps that most believers, followers of Jesus fall into as it relates to the answer of Genesis 1 and 2. The first view is called evolutionary creationism. Essentially the belief that evolution is totally God's idea. 
The second view is young earth creationism, which says that God does not use evolution. If he did, they would say that there is a distinction between macro and micro evolution. Third view is progressive creationism. This is that there is an old earth, there is an intelligent desire, be it God, and that God has been actively actively involved in his creation. Essentially that God is feeding new ideas within his creation. So three views. But here's what those that say, well, the Bible is the only arbiter of truth will say. They'll say, we're the young earth creationists and all those other guys are buffoons. They don't trust the Bible. Here's the problem with using that, is that there are passionate Jesus followers in each of these worldviews, and they have legitimate reasons to believe what they do using the Bible as well. Okay? I read a fantastic book. It's called Reading Genesis 1 and 2, and it gives like five or six different interpretations of Genesis 1 and 2. Now, you might be like, well, wow, that sounds interesting. It was very interesting, probably would bore the majority of the room, but what's really interesting is that the view— now, you might then ask the question, well, what does it matter? And here is an answer to that question from also Paul Copen, quoting a philosopher by the name of J.P. Moreland. He says this, Moreland estimates that 95% of science and theology is cognitively irrelevant to each other. Example, as a Christian, it doesn't matter to me whether a methane molecule has four or 15 hydrogen atoms. offers positive support for Christian teaching. Example, the Big Bang, the second law of thermodynamics. While only 2% may seem to undermine Christian theology, i.e. certain interpretations of Genesis 1 to 11. Keeping the main thing the main thing will help believers to become more adept at faith science integration in the home, in the church, and in our academic work. This is extremely important. Okay, only 2% seem to give some level of inconsistencies. Yet how much of the time do we spend, and I would challenge both the believer and if you're here and you're a skeptic, to say how much of your time are you spending in the 2%? Because it could be holding you back from incredible things. Now as it relates to the creation, Genesis 1 and 2 thing, I do believe that there are non-negotiables related to the creation and how it happened that are, as I said, non-negotiables. I believe that would be that God started it, first humans, humans made in the image of God, an original reason for creation or perfection, and then a fall. I believe that in order to keep the gospel intact, those have to be present within any view of the Genesis 1 and 2 account. Okay, does that make sense? You maybe don't like it. I remember I did a topic, a, subject, a talk on this actually, and uh, in the question period after I did this talk, all of the focus was on this one particular example and illustration and point, the 2%, all right? And I would say that sometimes we miss opportunities to talk to people about other things related to the Christian faith if we only focus on this 2%. Anyways, we'll get into that when we also have the people come up and actually talk about it maybe a little bit. Third point really important, is that science, as we see here, is that religion and science actually need each other. If science provides hints and descriptions of the how and religions provides reasons for why, they are systems of belief and study that are inextricably linked and they actually need each other. Religious texts, the Bible included, do not tell us the intricate DNA details of the created world. Therefore, we need science to learn more. This is actually a quote from Albert Einstein. He says this, Science without religion is lame, and religion without science is blind. 
Science without religion is lame, and religion without science is blind. If religion or God is the ocean, science is the boat sailing and discovering. Science takes things apart, and religion puts things together to see what they mean. David asked the question, okay, so that's religion and science, but what about Christianity and science? Are they compatible? Well, Christianity actually invites us to study science because we understand God to be the author and the designer of creation. As John Lennox points out, Genesis 1 verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I was speaking with Cam a little bit this week, and Cam uh, recommended the proverb, Proverbs 25 verse 2, which says this, it is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings to search things out. Think about that. It is the glory of God to conceal things, the glory of kings to search things out, to discover things that God conceals from us about his beautiful, created universe. Here's also the reality of Christianity, is that unlike other worldviews and religions, Christianity offers a number of fundamental variables that actually lay the groundwork for scientific inquiry and study. This from Kenneth Richard Sample's book, Without a Doubt. He says these are the different uh, fundamental variables that Christianity offers. Number one, the physical universe is a distinct objective reality. The laws of nature, too, the laws of nature exhibit order, patterns, and regularity. Three, the laws of nature are uniform throughout the physical universe. Four, the physical universe is intelligible. Five, the world is good, valuable, and worthy of careful study. Six, because the world is not divine and therefore not a proper object of worship, it can be an object of rational study. Seven, human beings possess the ability to discover the universe's intelligibility. Eight, the free agency of the creator makes the empirical method necessary. Nine, God encourages, even propels science through his imperative to humans to take dominion over nature. And ten, the intellectual virtues essential to carrying out the scientific enterprise are part of God's moral law. And this is what led some of the earliest followers of Jesus to take seriously the study of science. As was mentioned, there's Galileo, there's Isaac Newton, who led to the gravity discovery. How about Kepler? He said this, when you do science, when you, do science you are thinking God's thoughts after him. Blaise Pascal, Lord William Calvin, who says science will force you to believe in God. And then, of course, Francis Collins, who I quoted last week, who was the head of the Human Genome Project, who became a follower of Jesus because of his studies in science. Lewis says this, in science we have the notes to the poem. In Christianity we have the poem itself. Isn't that neat? In science we have the notes to the poem. In Christianity we have the poem itself. Maybe it ask the question, okay, that's Christianity, but what about Jesus? Here's what Jesus says, Matthew 22, verse 37. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. Think about that. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is what John Ortberg says of the reality of this, uh, of this um, desire of Jesus for us, his people. He writes this, The beginning of today's faculty system were scholars who formed self-governing guilds licensed by the Pope to have sole authority to grant degrees. The first university was established in Paris around the 12th century, and Oxford and Cambridge began in the 13th. The motto of Oxford University is from Psalm 27, verse 1, The Lord is my lights. 
Then came universities in Rome, Naples, Vienna, and Heidelberg. These were all begun by followers of Jesus so people could love God with all of their minds. 92% of the first 138 colleges and universities founded in America were begun for followers of this uneducated, itinerant, never-wrote-a-book carpenter. Mm. I like that. They may say, well, what about the great good news? What is the great good news of Christianity? And here it is, is that God himself has come to rescue and renew creation through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus on our behalf. That Jesus is, also, is about restoring you and I and our spiritual well-being, but also the physical creation which he has created and as he comes and is a minister to our reconciliation and rescue and redemption, he then sends us out to be ministers of reconciliation and redemption in both the physical world and in the spiritual world of our friends, our neighbors, and our families. And so as a reality of this is that the gospel actually propels us to a life of thinking wisely about creation, to doing study, to doing science, because we're to be ministers of reconciliation in this incredible world that God has created. So with that, I want to invite up two individuals. The first is Sarah Weingarten, and the second is Neil Ferguson. Come on down. So I'll let you guys sit there. And uh, I have one mic for you both to share. Okay. So I'll just, I'll give it to one of you. So what I think I would like to ask of both of you first is I obviously have introduced this topic of what seems to be this dichotomy in our culture. So why don't you share with us a little bit about what you're doing both in study and then vocationally, how you've seen this debate at play, and then your own perspective as, you've, as you're living out, being a follower of Jesus in this, in this world of science and, and also being people of faith. Um, yeah, so my name is Sarah. I'm a graduate of the University of Guelph. I did my undergrad in agriculture and international development. And now I'm doing my master's in the School of Public Health and Health Systems at the University of Waterloo. Um, I guess to respond to your question, I, I was just talking to a friend of mine, also a Christian, who's in the same program as me, um, the other day. And she was telling me about um, the high school she went to and going through her undergrad in life sciences and how um, how many questions, very direct questions she got from people like how can you be a Christian or how can you believe in God and, and also like study science um, which was fascinating for me to hear because that hasn't been my experience probably because I went to a Christian high school so there is that <laughs> um, but also wasn't my experience in my undergrad. I didn't find that people were um, aggressively and um, openly asking me those questions, um, which I actually kind, kind of found unfortunate because if people ask you questions directly, it gives you an opportunity to answer them. What I'm finding right now in my program is um, people are, are excessively polite and I think that there's a sort of a distancing I find, um, and I think it I think it plays into um, I liked what John Lennox said about the God of the gaps. There's this perception that um, faith is maybe, or people of faith or people who follow a religion 
do so out of tradition, do so out of um, connection to family, connection to community, etc. Um, rather than it being anything bigger than that or more than that, and therefore it's not something that seems offensive and something that seems um, counteractive, um, and therefore not something to challenge. Um, and and people are very concerned about being politically correct. Um, so that's something that I've found unfortunate um, because it doesn't open up as many opportunities for conversation for me um, in that direct way, if that makes sense. And for you, Neil. Um, yeah, my background is uh, I was, I'm from South Africa. I was originally a professor there in wildlife sciences and animal nutrition. Uh, I moved to Canada. Maple Leaf uh, offered me a position to head up, direct the uh, uh, R&D program, uh, and then had subsequently uh, we were bought out by a large global animal nutrition company. Uh, yeah, the environment I work in is very much, uh, I would say the majority are very agnostic, but probably even fairly aggressive uh, uh, anti-God in the sense that uh, they will openly confess the, the sort of notion that to them, it's almost that, that science is their religion. So they, the sense of their, their they have a, a measure of faith, a set of beliefs in science that, that tries to explain out God. I mean, their whole purpose is to try and take religion out of science. Um, and um, so it, it makes it very challenging, but at the same time, uh, it opens up for discussion and, and debate and, and to try and uh, understand that there is a, a much bigger picture. And I think particularly when you start getting into uh, the two examples of uh, in, in the wildlife science side of story, when you see ecosystems and, and how they've, they've developed, it's, it's really hard not to, to see how there's a divine creator in how they work and, and work together well. Um, and then on the other side, more at a cellular level, when you start looking at, for example, our gut and the, the tight junctions and the genomics involved in our gut, it's just, it really is hard to try and explain that there is no God. I mean, these are such intricate but such finely de uh, designed systems that, uh, that help us live and exist. Uh, and when you remove God out of that, it, you know, I just laugh for them because they don't have any logical explanation. They, they get to points when they, they have to confess, yeah, we, we don't understand, but mm -hmm. this is what we believe. Yeah. Now, you touched on there that there, there is this realm of which people in the science field are looking to it as a religion. So I made the point this morning to say that religion is no substitute for science, but science is no substitute for religion. Uh, you then provided a couple of examples for us of, of ways that that is um, not helpful. How would you say, though, that for yourself living within, I'm, I'm sure there's the awe factor of it, but what have you seen of some of the limitations of science that others are suppressing of its own limitations? And how have you been able to speak into that or, or live within it within your, own, uh, within your own faith in Christ? Yeah, I, I think the, the biggest area is around the fact that science is only one study. It's a study really of structure, behavior in the physical and natural world. It doesn't explain emotions. It doesn't explain hurt. 
It doesn't explain that you live in an environment where there's injustices. Uh, the reality is that we are humans and we live in a society, whether we like it or not, of other humans. And so as soon as you bring in a human element, it becomes really hard to find scientific explanations about emotions. And so as soon as, for me, as soon as you start sharing personal experiences of how God intervened in miraculous ways that you can't explain in a natural and physical realm, yeah, they, they have no answer for that. And, and, and that often opens the door to having conversations that there's more to life than just science. There, there is another world out there that um, involves your feelings, your emotions. We are fe emotional beings and science and the, the physical realm is one, but we do need to acknowledge that, hey, we are people that have feelings and uh, and so then they, they start to feel very uncomfortable in that, and, and then it provides the opportunity to share. But that's where God moves. That's where God will help you explain and, and get through issues where you can't explain scientifically. Uh, they are beyond a purely uh, physical and natural phenomenon. Right. How about for you, Sarah? I know, I know for you, you said you talked about Christian high school. I know there was some faith exploration there in university between other worldviews. What is it about the Christian faith that pro pro propels you to study what you're studying and sort of continues to amaze you as you consider the Christian God, uh, thinking and loving God with our minds? Speak to that a little bit. That's a small question. Yes. Um, <laughs> um, so I was actually thinking about something recently in terms of um, that sort of gets at all of those things. So like bear with me for a moment. Um, so one thing for me that one thing for me that's striking about science, this whole science versus faith question is um, underlying both those things, and I think that came out really nicely this morning, underlying both of those things um, are questions about objective truth. And that's something that I think that some of my colleagues don't, um, they're so distanced from the world of faith right now that that doesn't um, occur to them. Um, but that, for me, in university, that's, that's, that was underlying all of those explorations was objective truth, what is true about the world? What can we know about God? Um, so underlying both science and, and faith are questions of objective truth. And um, the recognition that there is objective truth. There are objectives about the way that the world works, about how the world came to be. Um, there are truths about that, and we're trying to understand what those are. Um, but further to that, both faith and science um, or both Christianity and science recognize that there are limitations to the degree to which that we, we can understand what that truth is. Paul writes about this in, in Corinthians when he says, like, now we see but a poor reflection. So as Christians, we recognize, like, there's, there are limits to what we can know and understand about who God is. Um, similarly, what I've been realizing and realizing more and more, the further that I go in science, is the same is true about science. Um, they just, we call it faith, they call it theory. So science is based on theories about how the world works and piecing together um, different data points. So different people doing studies, um, coming up with different data points and different perspectives and then people putting all of those ideas together 
and then stepping back and saying, okay, if we take all of these data points together and we look at them, what's the best, what's the picture that emerges from all of that? And what's the explanation of best fit that, that pulls all of those data points together in a cohesive unit? Um, so those two things, realizing that about science, and I think it's, it's funny for me to think back to high school and think about how science is presented in high school. Um, you sort of like, they explain to you, oh, this is the history of like the model of the atom, and this is the way they thought it was, and isn't that cute? Then we realized, oh no, it's more like this, and then today we know that the atom looks like this. Um, but then the further you go in science, the more you realize, well, no, today we're still part of that whole journey of trying to understand more and more about how those things work. Um, so, I guess for me, in terms of, <laughs> to go back to your question, um, Christianity, um, for me, I think I've been thinking about this recently, sort of in those terms. Like, why do I find Christianity so compelling in the context of studying science, in the context of encountering other faiths, in the context of encountering agnostics, atheists, et cetera, et cetera. But everything that I learn about the world, whether it's about the natural world and the way that world works, whether it's about humans and how humans act and function and behave, um, when I consider that through the lens of Christianity, it makes sense. It all fits. The data points align into one cohesive unit. And I think that, similar with science, when we find a theory that we know to be close to the objective truth about how that thing works, we know it's close because new data points don't surprise us. Like, if something new emerges, like, there's ways that we can explain sort of outliers. We don't have these sort of outliers that are like, okay, like, we sort of understand this about this idea, but there's these outliers that we haven't quite figured out. No, it's like when new data, data points emerge, we're like, okay, that makes sense because we have this theory, this framework um, that's close to the truth. And so we could have anticipated and predicted mm. that, that those sorts of things would also be true. So similar with my Christian worldview, is I keep finding that in my classes, that I, I learn new things and they're fascinating and mind-blowing, but I'm like, I'm not shocked by them um, because they make sense in the context of the framework um, of the Christian faith. So your challenge to a skeptic would be, what framework are you living in? Because there's huge limitations to your framework without religion, be it Christianity or something else. Yeah, so I guess like part of that journey for me in university was encountering different faiths and saying like, okay, I believe in God, and I went through that sort of process, but why do I believe in this God? And um, that's what it came down to me, or that's what it came down to for me was um, there's just, there's, this doesn't sufficiently explain the data points that I see. Right. Um, so yeah, I guess, yes. Great. Um, and I was reading this week, just in the research that I was doing, that there are more believers and people becoming Christians through the hard sciences um, than, than in other studies, such things as the humanities. Mm -hmm. But in the hard sciences, people are more, the more they're studying, they're actually going, there needs to be a God. There must be a reason that the way things are, that the way that they are. Neil, I wondered if you could touch on a little bit of parenting 
um, you have two sons and they've got involved in engineering and then you can maybe get into a little bit specifics of what Tom is studying, but how do you parent in such a way that helps fuel? I know that there will be parents in the room that have kids that are very detail-oriented, they love the sciences, but then some of the, uh, I've, maybe, maybe I'm not being fair, but I know that there's some fear within some parents of like, oh, the, the science book just gave us a number to the existence of the world, and I'm not really sure what I feel about that. Could you talk about some of the way that you've parented in such a way that has helped encourage your kids into the sciences? Sure. Uh, maybe what I shared uh, on the outset, it, it may not be the answer for everyone. I mean, you all each know your own children. Um, but but uh, what I think is we should never be afraid. I mean, as we've, what we've learned today, science won't contradict God. Uh, I think uh, what we have to be careful as parents is not to put our fears and our perceptions on our kids that, uh, you know, we're perpetuating this fear that there's this contradiction between science and, and God, and there isn't. Uh, for us uh, as a family, having lived in South Africa, we spent a lot of time out, outdoors, so in the wilderness, in the bush, and that still, for me, is my cathedral of worship, is to be in the African bush, because the, the, the music's provided by the birds and the animals, and mm. you just see as Paul says in Romans, the invisible qualities of God are in nature, and you see it. Uh, it's so hard not to when you, you just see the, the majesty and, and realize how small as humans we really are and how vulnerable when you're in the environment. And that was sort of the environment that our two boys grew up in. So we would talk openly, freely about any issues that would perceive to be a contradiction. Uh, they were never in reality, but but... Yeah, they would ask questions, and we need to expose them, I think. The best way is to see these, these invisible qualities of, of God and, and do things with them. Explain as you're going through. Never be afraid to, to try and answer. And even admit you don't know all the answers, but it makes a whole lot more sense when you see that, that God is, is behind it. And I think for, for Tom, our, our youngest, uh, he did, uh, originally did nuclear physics and then switched to um, material engineering and and for him there was no there was no contradiction when you understand the atom and you understand physics what's happening uh, and even I remember having a conversation with him saying that you know without God there's a lot about uh, nuclear physics that you, you can't explain it's just uh, there's a phenomenon there's forces that are at play there that we just don't understand why these, for example, atoms don't just disappear off. They stay in a very tight circle around the nucleus. So there's a lot about science that, uh, you know, actually points towards there being this divine creator. And I think from a parent point of view, we really need to encourage and provide that environment mm -hmm. where they can actually be exposed. We were, had the privilege of of having the natural environment where they could see animals, live outdoors, and it's much more conducive to uh, seeing a, a divine creator. Right. So don't protect them. No, not at all. It'll come back to haunt you if you do, because uh, right. uh, you know, at some point they have to move out of the, the shadow of their parents' faith uh, and, and have their own faith. And we as parents, we felt, Christine and I, that it was really our purpose to try and accommodate and make that transition as smooth as possible mm -hmm. that 
they need to discover that there is a God. They need to have their personal relationship with Jesus. It's not under the shadow of us. That's great. Thank you to both of you. Well, Cam, I'm going to ask you to transition us uh, back into singing, given you're both a scientist and a musician. <laughs> 